This morning we continue our studies in 1 Peter. We may finish up the first chapter this morning, we may not. We will see what we get into. Um, Now, it's been a while since we have met together, uh, but we're here. So I'll real briefly review a few things before we get started. We first of all saw that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ, so he does write with authority. It is just as if God was there talking to him. If an apostle writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is the same thing as if God himself were there talking to him. And it's to the dispersion uh, all over um, Asia, Asia Minor. And um, he gives us some very wonderful theological uh, propositions in verses 3 through 12, telling us who God is, what all He's done for us, how wonderful this salvation is for us, um, the fact that we're going to have trials, but they are going to result in us glorifying Jesus Christ if we handle them God's way. And then He talks about the salvation that we have, how precious that salvation is, that the prophets who were prophesying in the old covenant times were prophesying for their sake these Jewish prophets were prophesying for the sake of these Gentile and Jew believers in the new covenant times so they are indeed in a blessed situation and then he says therefore in light of all of these wonderful things in verse 13 prepare your minds for action which means that there are certain things that Christians need to do They need to work hard. They need to study. They need to find out what God's will is because the persecutions are coming and they need to know what to do. They need to be hard at work, preparing their minds for action. Peter says, And you shall be holy, for I am the Lord your God, I am holy, in all of your conduct. And this mainly refers to public conduct. You need to act honorably in all things. And then... What we studied last time in verse 18, so knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And we spent a good bit of the time the last time we were together talking about this precious blood of Jesus Christ how God started teaching them how precious this was uh, in the Levitical cultus. We read about in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that uh, the, the blood flowed every day and it all pointed to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And this blood is precious. And we got into the fact that a lot of Christians don't like this idea especially liberals, whether they're Christians or not, you make your mind up. But they do not like the bloody religion that Jesus had to die a bloody death on the cross. Their Redeemer had to pour out His blood unto death for them to be saved. But uh, Peter doesn't say anything like that. He says this is the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It is precious blood. Our redemption is precious. 
The blood of Christ is precious, and you need not be ashamed of it. No matter what the liberals or a good portion of um, the evangelical church says, it is precious blood. So that brings us up to where we will be today. Any questions, comments on anything? All right, today we should get at least verses 20 and 21 done. And so let's have that read. I think, Mike, that was a sign to you. Uh-huh. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. All right, this is similar to 1 Timothy 3.16, if you want to turn there. We have the same thought, and let's have 1 Timothy 3.16 read this. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. All right. Now, this 1 Timothy 3.16 was probably a hymn or a spiritual song that was sang in the early church. It says he or God. It doesn't matter whether it's he or God. There's a manuscript difference in that. But the he is obviously Jesus Christ because only the second person of the Trinity was manifested in the flesh. It was vindicated or justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So um, this is the same thoughts that Peter has here. This, the, the work of Jesus Christ in history, how it started out with Him being born. He was manifested in the flesh, and He ended up being glorified. So we're going to go through those things this morning about Jesus Christ in his it would be his state of humility from the time he was born until the time he died on the cross okay now this verse starts off in verse 20 he was foreknown before the foundation of the world all right in your notes here the doctrine of election is taught here again Okay, unconditional election or election. And this word is the same root word that is used for Christ, for Christ being foreknown. The same root word is used for Christ being foreknown as it was in verse 2 for us being foreknown. If you look back in verse 2, it says that we were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So we learn in verse 2, we were elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And we learn here in verse 20 that Jesus is elected elected according to the foreknowledge of God. And uh, that brings to mind Isaiah 42, verse 1. We have that read for us this morning. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. All right. He was this chosen one or his elect. 
So we see that we were foreknown and Christ was foreknown and chosen. I'll read you a quote here from theologian Robert Leatham, a current theologian, from his uh, work on uh, systematic theology, which I would highly recommend it to anyone. He says this, and I quote, Election is a Trinitarian event seen against the backdrop of sin and its consequences. As such, it is an eternal, gracious, sovereign, and loving determination. And he backs that up with Jeremiah 31.3 and Malachi 1.2 and 3. It entails the election and reprobation of individuals, but goes beyond that. For it is also the point where Christ is constituted mediator and redeemer. And includes the fact that God chooses not to be in isolation, but to be incarnate in his son. Hence, scripture teaches election from beginning to end. Election follows from creation. Excuse me. Election follows from creation and salvation, being works of God. And Booser, I think he was a reformed man of the Reformation, describes it as the first locus of theology. Election is the first locus of theology. So God elects his son from before the foundation of the world, eternity past, and he elects us in his son. So in eternity past, God elected his son and then elected us in him and then in it uh, sometime in the future all of the elect will come in and for eternity future all the elect will be together eternity past God elects his son and us eternity future all the elect will be gathered together to be in God to be with God forever so that's election like Lethem says uh, from the beginning to the end. It is eternal. So in your notes there it says, Christ did not come on his own. He was elected and sent. The eternal Son of God from eternity past was elected. And then in the fullness of time he was sent by the Father to redeem us. That is the doctrine of election or unconditional election. That is the second letter in Tulip, right? We will get to the first letter in Tulip in a few minutes. Unconditional election. God does not look down down into history and say, aha, so-and-so is going to believe. No, so-and-so believes because God has foreordained that they would believe. All right, any comments on Christ being the elect of God or being foreknown from eternity past? Or this, or the Son, rather, being foreknown. All right, now the next, he was made manifest. Um, he was made manifest according to the ESV, I think. It was revealed is what Mike read. 
appeared. He appeared. All right. He appeared or he was made manifest. So Peter states that he was revealed or manifested. And you notice. The fact that he was foreknown and elected is the decree of God. God's eternal decree from eternity past and it can never be changed in any way, shape, or form. The decrees of God can never change just like God can never change. And the fact that he was revealed is the execution of that decree. So we have the forming of the decree, for lack of a better word. He made the decree in eternity past. And then in the fullness of time, he executed the decree by sending his son into the world. So we read in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, God executing his decree. And we'll have that read. Yeah. Travis is going to read that for us. John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay. Now we all know that the beginning of John says, In the beginning was the Word. So even at that time, the Word of God was foreordained, was elected, that He would come into this world to save God's elect. And then we say, and then we see in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. <clears throat> so it's what we have is um, the fact that. Jesus, or the Son, was revealed in the execution of the decree. Now, God decreed this from eternity past, and He executed the decree here in John 1. So if God decrees something, it will certainly come to pass. The eternal decree of God, what we see every day, is the unfolding of the eternal decree of God. That's what history is. The unfolding of God's eternal decree. Yo. We seem to have a, a lot of words that really effectively mean the same thing. Uh, or no is, to my mind, is the same thing as predestination. Uh, chosen, elect, uh, foreordained. So we've got a lot of words that if they it's hard for me to see the difference between yeah. Yeah, I agree. And we have all those words, and yet there are some that deny the doctrine. Right. Yeah, the the they all probably have a little bit of nuance to them. A lot of them just different ways they're translated. Um, ch chosen and elected, most likely the same Hebrew word. Yeah. The eternality of um, God's mercy puts me in mind of Psalm 103. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Yeah. 
one for the mercy, there is mercy, none of us are And that was given to us from eternity past. Like J. Adams says, it shouldn't please you that you're saved. It should amaze you that you're saved. Yeah, and it's, it's such a rich doctrine. Like Mike pointed out, we've got all these words that point to it. All right, so when God decrees it, it certainly comes to pass. All right, <clears throat> now moving on to verse 21. All right, verse 20, he was foreknown, he was manifested. Verse 21 says, Who through him are believers in God? So we are through him, we are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, now, <clears throat> this is the God who raised Jesus from the dead after his crucifixion. We believe in God Almighty who raised Jesus from the dead after his crucifixion. How important this is, according to Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. Somebody's assigned to read that. I think it's you there. Listen closely. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he, he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All right, you might want to turn to this. <clears throat> this is something that I didn't even realize. What was the reference? Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. <clears throat> read over it a hundred thousand times and I didn't realize that somebody pointed it out to me. <clears throat> Alright. <clears throat> Men were ignorant of God, it says, for a while. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. <clears throat> I have seen many a fundamentalist saying it's not necessary to repent if you're a Christian. It's not what Paul says. He says God commands all people everywhere to repent. Alright, now, He has fixed the day on which He will judge the world. That's Judgment Day. We all believe that because that's in our creed. The Bible teaches it. And so, a day is coming which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of course that is the man Jesus Christ, our mediator. The Lord Jesus Christ will judge the world on a certain day. And of this he has strongly suggested to all by raising him from the dead. I want to say, that's the way I, I read it for so many times. But no, God has given assurance to all, not a few, but he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You can be assured of this. God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
There are myriads of witnesses for that in the Bible. We have four gospel writers that tell us. We have Paul saying that what, 500 people saw him after he was raised. We have undisputable witness that God has raised Jesus from the dead. It is attested by many witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 9 leaves no doubt that it is a well-attested event. And he gives assurance by this that there's going to be judgment day coming. This opens a new era of history. When Christ rises from the dead, that puts men in a position where they have been given assurance that they're going to be judged on a certain day by Jesus. He has risen from the dead. That gives assurance to all men everywhere that judgment day is coming. All men know it. They may deny it, but they know it. A lot of times I tell people that are antagonistic to the gospel, I said, you're going to have a hard time on judgment day. I assure you it's coming. Not only I assure you, but God has assured you it's coming. So you need to repent. God has commanded you to repent according to this passage. Any other observations on that? It couldn't be any clearer. There is no resurrection. We're still in our sins. It's so important. God has raised him from the dead. Well, they would say they don't, that it's not obvious to them. But it's another one of those things that's repressed. Right. They're not going to be able to stand before God and say, I didn't have any evidence. No, they've got... Or they didn't have enough evidence. Yeah. You weren't clear, oh Lord. You weren't, I mean... That used to be my line when I was not a believer. Yeah. Not enough evidence. There is evidence inside you and there is evidence outside you. You have the work of the law written in your heart. You have your conscience accusing you or excusing you. Everything is made plain to you from the creation of God. According to Romans chapter 1, there is no excuse. And now we have on top of that, God has raised His Son from the dead. There is plenty of evidence and that leads me into the last point. I just want to <clears throat> explain something to you here. God says here that He raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. Did anybody have John 17, 1 assigned to them? Yeah, Lenny, okay. All right, Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified, or the night he was crucified, the night before he was crucified. He prayed that the Father would glorify him, that he would glorify the Father. And of course, Jesus' prayers are always answered. So, in your notes, it says Christ was glorified in his crucifixion and resurrection. So, this crucifixion. Uh, when he was laid in the grave, his glorification begins. Some people say when he was laid in the grave. Some people say when he rose from the dead. But 
after the, right after the crucifixion, he entered into his exalted state, which he will be forever. He brings in the new age. And we read here, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, all of this shows that the Christian has ample justification for his faith in the triune God. We have here God's witness at creation. We have his witness in providence. We have his witness in the cross, the resurrection, the glorification. We have ample justification for what we believe. Um, Anybody that has any other belief system, any other system of truth they believe in, they cannot justify it. The Christian can justify his belief. He has ample evidence. Any other system of belief, there's no evidence. What was the last blank on page 9 and the first blank on page 10? Somebody want to tell her? I don't have the same. Believers, nine and then judgment. What was nine? Nine was believers. Believers, thank you. And then judgment, thank you. So Christian, this should give us assurance of our faith. There is no reason not to believe. People will say they don't believe. People will say there's no evidence. People will say this is a bunch of baloney. But they cannot justify any of that. We can justify what we believe. Because through Jesus, we are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, I think I'm going to stop there. That's a good stopping place. We only have about four more minutes. Any comments, questions on anything that we've read? Two verses isn't too bad, I don't guess.